Welcome back to The Re-Education. Today's show is about the endangered mean boss, why it seems that insubordination and incompetence is no longer a firing offense. My guest is fan favorite and co-host of The Fifth Column, Michael Moynihan. Oh, have I got your attention now? Good. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. Work with the tech guys to unlock those files. Dig them, take a leave of absence. Take a leave of what? Cleaning is dead. I'm your boss now. I don't give a fuck. I'd rather hand in my papers first. World needs plenty of bartenders. Two weeks with pay. Good. We just heard two of the greatest mean boss scenes in modern cinematic history. I couldn't choose between the young Alec Baldwin of Glengarry Glen Ross and the older, more seasoned Alec Baldwin in The Departed. I play them because it seems like these kinds of bosses are now an endangered species in American culture. Yes, people lose their jobs still. An errant tweet from 2013 can cost you your livelihood. A misinterpreted remark. But losing your job for incompetence or insubordination has gone the way of the VCR and the record player. And when you are fired, it's almost always handled by a consultant or HR person. No one is ever fired or canned or axed. In 2023, people are let go, downsized, deselected as we balance our workforce. No hard feelings. And that is when an employee is actually fired. Most of the time, at least in elite institutions, a normal transgression is met with more workplace compliance training or a reassignment. More often, it's the bosses that are fired, except we call it cancellation. If Alec Baldwin tried to fire a defiant cop today, his case would be referred to a review board because of his insensitivity to bartenders and the violence implied by the verb hit and noun brick in his outburst. Well, my thoughts turn to Baldwin this month for many reasons. There is, of course, the brewing scandal of Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. We discussed her a few episodes back when she began her gaslighting campaign about the rise of anti-Semitic activism at her university. She claimed without irony that students who demonstrate in solidarity with mass shooters were protected by Harvard's commitment to free speech. Sure. An obvious double standard on a campus where the slightest microaggressions in other cases invite swift and irrevocable penalties. Well, now it has emerged that Gay is a serial plagiarist who has violated Harvard's own standards against intellectual theft. But Harvard's board of directors has stood by her. And then there was a candlelight vigil in front of the White House protesting the president's policy on the war in Gaza. We have seen refugee camps, hospitals, schools, and entire neighborhoods bombed. We have seen dead men, women, and children pulled from the rubble in their pajamas. That man is Josh Paul, a former State Department official, who at least had the courage to actually quit his post in protest. But gathered behind him were masked White House staffers, many wearing kafiyas, the Palestinian scarf we associate with Yasser Arafat. These anonymous staffers did not have the courage of Josh Paul. They wanted to keep their jobs, but they also wanted to undermine their boss's policies. 
In November, many of these staffers, along with others in the administration, anonymously signed so-called open letters. A contradiction, I know. But it has been all the rage since October 7. Anonymous congressional staffers will sign these alleged open letters calling for a ceasefire. So will many inside the executive branch. Alec Baldwin would have unmasked the protesters and told them about the unique opportunities for bartenders in the Washington, D.C. area, but not this White House. Since the start of the conflict, the Biden administration has been holding listening sessions, small breakout groups for staff to just hear the many complaints about helping Israel defend itself after the massacre of October 7. This problem is not limited to Congress and the executive branch. Let's consider the fate of James Bennett the New York Times editorial page editor who had the temerity to run an op-ed in 2020 by Senator Tom Cotton that endorsed sending in the National Guard to curb the riots that year. He was forced to resign because of the new rules against mean bosses. There's other breaking news we're following right now. The opinion editor of the New York Times has just resigned amid an uproar over an op-ed by Republican Senator Tom Cotton calling for military force potentially to be used against rioters in U.S. cities. Now, nearly four years later, we know the full story because this month, Bennett, who is now with The Economist, published a lengthy essay this month describing the climate inside the Times when he was forced out. Here I want to quote from it. Quote, Shortly after we published the op-ed that Wednesday afternoon, some reporters tweeted their opposition to Cotton's argument. But the real action was in the Times Slack channels, where reporters and other staff began not just venting but organizing. They turned to the union to draw up a workplace complaint about the op-ed. At least one of the reporters who covered news media took a strong position in the internal debate, amplifying a message that argues for more force only puts our own people in harm's way and it undermines the paper's commitment to their safety, end quote. This reporter argued to colleagues in Slack going on to offer suggestions for how the union should attack the op-ed. I think it's good that a lot of us will put our names on a strong condemnation. End quote. Well, I just want to emphasize something here. Journalists on Slack organizing a campaign against another section of the paper, another editor, on the grounds that a widely held opinion in America endangers the safety of reporters, well, that should be a fireable offense itself. And in that era of Baldwinian bosses, it would be. But not anymore. What followed was a humiliation ritual. For a newsroom-wide Zoom conference with hundreds of people inside the virtual chat, Bennett had to appease the insurrectionist in his own newsroom. I want to read again here from his essay. Quote, a Zoom call with a couple thousand people is a disorienting experience, particularly when many of them are not particularly mindful of your full humanity. I do not recommend it. As my first turn to speak up, I was still struggling with what I should apologize for. I was not going to apologize for denying my colleagues humanity or endangering their lives. I had not done those things. I was not going to apologize for publishing the op-ed. Finally, I came up with something that felt true. I told the meeting that I was sorry for the pain that my leadership of opinion had caused. What a pathetic thing to say. I did not think to add, because I'd lost track of this truth myself by then, that opinion journalism that never causes pain is not journalism. End quote. Right on. Bennett's point here is undeniable. It is amazing to me to imagine that a plurality of alleged journalists at America's premier newspaper on the one hand feel empowered to demand an editor be sacked for running opinion they dislike. But to do so on the grounds that Tom Cotton's op-ed endangered the lives of journalists is a betrayal of the profession. Tell it to someone like David Rhodes. 
was kidnapped by the Taliban while covering the Afghanistan war for the Times. Tell it to Daniel Pearl, who was beheaded by terrorists while covering that war for the Wall Street Journal. And I could go on. The conflation of carriage with spite and danger with intellectual discomfort is insulting to anyone with eyes to see and ears to listen. So where is all this coming from? Well, a big culprit are the elite universities. And everyone knows what I'm talking about. So this was the 2017 protest against Charles Marion, accomplished political science, whose book, The Bell Curve, argued that blacks on average have lower IQs than other ethnic groups. And I disagree, by the way, with his thesis, because I'm skeptical that intellectual quotient, the measure that he used, is a real measure of intelligence. I think it's far more complicated. But no matter, it was a serious book, and this was hardly the only argument that this book made. Now, I don't fault the students for disagreeing with Charles Mary. I actually am on their side on that. I do, however, fault them for trying to prevent him from speaking at Middlebury. The situation became quite dangerous when a mob followed Mary and another member of the faculty to his car and ended up injuring the professor while making it impossible for the car to leave. They were rocking the car back and forth. It was a mob action. Now, at the very least, one would expect, or one would think, that the students who injured this professor would be expelled students who prevented Murray from talking might be shamed. But that did not happen. At the end of the day, no one was expelled. And the only five students that had more serious penalty of a mark on their permanent record, well, at the time, the college said that this was a serious penalty. It could affect their applications to graduate schools. But I have to say, I totally doubt that because the programs that any students from Middlebury would be applying to, well, they share the same politics as the students. And there are countless examples of this kinds of things, from the Halloween controversy at Yale of 2014, where students sort of surrounded a professor, Nicholas Kostakis, and just sort of mow-mowed him. You can find this at Evergreen, which I talk about in the interview with Michael Moynihan, where students basically hounded and chased around Brent Weinstein when he was a professor there. And you can sort of see this thing all over the place. So I should say that this is not only unfair, this kind of demonstration where the point is to deny the speech of those with whom the demonstrators disagree to students who might want to hear the opinion that the protesters are trying to silence, but over time, this tactic will weaken the intellects of the protesters themselves. Instead of having to confront a challenging opinion with a better argument, honing your mind and your thinking, well, you know, the students will learn to appeal to authority or force to make sure that no one hears the wrong thing. And in the process, their critical thinking skills will become flabby. And in a sense, you could say that all of this is at least in part history repeating. On April 23rd, SDS called a demonstration in which we plan to demonstrate inside Lowe Library to protest Columbia's complicity with the Institute for Defense Analysis, its racism in building the gym in Morningside Park, and its attempted suppression of the left by disciplining six students. About 500 people joined, joined us at the sundial. We were opposed by about 200 jocks. We found that not only were the jocks there blocking our way, but we found when we got to Low Library that the library was locked by the administration. That was an interview with one of the leaders of the 1968 student demonstrations at Columbia University. And we remember these today because of their success Eventually, the students and you could say the anti-war movement in general won. Eventually, Columbia's president, Grayson Kirk, had to resign before the 1969 academic year. 
university also ended its relationship with the Institute for Defense Analysis, a Pentagon think tank that became very controversial during the Vietnam War. And the university stopped construction of a gym in Harlem that would have required Harlem's residents to enter through a tunnel instead of the main entrance. The students at the time were saying this was Jim, spelled G-Y-M, Crow, because of this disparity for the largely black population of Harlem versus the white population of Columbia. Very well. But is what's forgotten in this episode was that the student protesters themselves paid a real price. They clashed with police and other students. So there was some physical courage required at times. Some were expelled. Others were arrested after taking over a building for 24 hours, essentially holding the dean of students hostage. All of this is to say that the students eventually changed Columbia's policies, but in the moment, they made sacrifices. Whatever one thinks of their goals, the students then showed real courage. And that is something that's missing from many of today's student radicals. Yes, the protesters who blocked the Bay Bridge in San Francisco will now be charged with a series of misdemeanors. Good. But none of the New York Times radicals had to worry about losing their jobs. None of the anonymous open letter writers or kafia-clad vigil attenders need to worry about being banished from the Democratic Party or losing their staff positions. They are engaging in cost-free civil disobedience. And this is a recipe for anarchy and dysfunction. I don't blame the staffers, the reporters, or the students. No, I blame the bosses. If you are afraid of the workforce, it becomes impossible to demand basic competence. The institution, whether it's a newspaper, a university, or the White House, becomes captured by the political preferences of those with the loudest voices. And if there are no consequences to defiance, then over time, the institution will fail. As we are seeing at the Times and at Harvard, you can only appease the radicals for so long. Eventually, they must be reminded that the world needs plenty of bartenders. Get down! Well, listeners, we are so lucky to have returning guest, co-host of the fifth column, America's top anti-plagiarism cop. One of the greats, another protege of Christopher Hitchens. I'm only speaking, of course, of Michael Moynihan. Thank you so much. Welcome back Thanks to the re-education camp. I, I always love being here. It's so great to have you. And today's show is about why can't we fire kids anymore? That's really what it's about. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking we see it all over. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to, some things I touched on in the monologue. One, this anonymous letters from the White House staff. That's your, that's, they're there to implement the president's policy and they're mm -hmm. having candlelight vigils. Okay. Then we've got the same thing in Congress. Then we've got the James Bennett thing where we find out that there are like people in the newsroom who are organizing a campaign against him in the newsroom, nor, I mean, like, I don't know, like five minutes ago, that would be like, okay, you're fired if you don't mm -hmm. want to work here. 
what is happening, Michael Moynihan? And I'll, I'll, I'll tell the listeners, <laughs> I'm bringing him on in this particular show because I believe that his journalism from, I think it was 2017 or 2018 with Evergreen College. Yeah, around there. That is a part of the answer is, as we try to dig deeper here at the re-education. What is going on? Why do people think that they, des- like, you know, it's like, you can't, you know what I mean? Like, there's no disincentive anymore. You can sort of take on your boss and say whatever you want. Why are the teachers afraid of the pupils? That's it. The, you know, I, funny story about that. I just remembered this this morning. I think I might have told it before. But this is true. I went to interview Brett Weinstein, that then unknown Brett Weinstein, involved in the Evergreen yeah, scandal. Yeah, a hippie biologist. A hippie biologist at that point, talking about how much he loved Bernie Sanders. And how things have changed. Um, And then I did get an interview, the first and I think the only interview with the president of the college. I believe his name was George Bridges. And so we sat down. It was the shortest interview of my career, by the way. He walked out on it at about 17 or so minutes. Now, we... When you, when you film these things, you bring a camera crew with you. But if it's a you know a bigger one, you get a local camera guy too to have two cameras. And we had a local camera guy who was this kind of grizzled old guy, very, very cool guy. He kind of looked like John Bolton, but like with a ponytail and tall dude. And, and you know, he said to me at the end of this interview, he walked out, Bridges walked out. And as I yelled at him on the way out, because they pretended they had something else to do, they didn't like the questioning. And he said to me, you know, I went to the University of Washington and I was kicked out in 1969 or 1970 for protesting the Vietnam War. And I said, well, not for protesting the Vietnam War. He said, well, no, I, we broke into the president's office and did a sit-in and they kicked us all out. This is the cameraman. And he said, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> well, there you go. I was like, wow. He's like, you know, people used to get kicked out for this sort of thing. And this guy, in that sort of famous video, where his office is taken over by these deranged students. And I truly mean they're deranged. Deranged. And it's a great thing to see in some sense, because you can imagine the kind of Maoist cadres that would would accept that sort of thing if it happened in America, or the the sort of Khmer Rouge types. There's at one point in which George Bridges, the the president of uh, Evergreen College, asks if he can go to the bathroom. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) You're right. No, and if you do, you have to have an escort. I mean, it's a hostage situation. These are little Houthis. I mean, they're just literally saying you cannot go to the bathroom. Into, and my response to that is, why not just kick them out of school? You're the president. You're. Yeah, what did he you, say? Did you ask him that? I did ask him that. And he hemmed and hawed and gave me a bunch of non-answers. And there's at one point where I said, you know, are you doing a thing? This is an amazing thing. If I have this clip, I'll post it. I might have even posted it on my Instagram. But at one point I said, you know, are you doing a sort of rope-a-dope, you know, in a reference to Muhammad Ali, taking a beating, and then at the end uh, uh, coming on strong and knocking out George Foreman, that sort of thing. And he objected to me using the term rope-a-dope. Why? And I, I don't, I still to this day don't know why, and I think it was the the word rope. You, you were culturally appropriating I, the, the poetry it was that of, a, or, of a black athlete. It was, athlete. The, it was yeah. the word rope, which is oh. redolent of lynching or something. I think that's what he thought. Because there's a couple of things that he kept on correcting my language on. And I said, well, that's kind of the problem here, isn't it? I mean, there's multiple things in which in which he, times in which he- I think that George Bridges is the poster man or poster boy for the failure of 
leadership in elite institutions, whether it's the New York yeah. Times or Harvard. And he was that incident was the canary in the coal mine because I mean nobody cares about Evergreen College. No offense to yeah. anybody who went to Evergreen, but like it's not, you know, if it was always going to be this, it was like Antioch. It's like okay, there were it's a school for radicals, yeah, right, Reed, school for Antioch, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine, but it was we were getting the preview and your yeah. your video report for vice was like in many ways the big blinking warning it's coming yeah it's not just going to be limited to evergreen it's coming everybody and, and, and keep it, in it mind sure did. <laughs> these weren't students that were taking over buildings i mean we had a conversation about this via text eli where you pointed out that mark rudd the yeah the he was arrested students, students for a democratic society at columbia was arrested and this happened. Lots of people were arrested, by the way. And lots of people yeah. were like, they were, it was like a big thing. Eventually, by the way, they won, but it took mm. some time. I mean, 1968 was a rough year for Columbia. Yeah. Um, it, and it kind of petered out pretty quickly in the early 70s. And that's because there was a, there was a pretty strong reaction to it. And this is something that you, I mean, now keep well, in mind. I mean, the, the, the president resigned. They, the they, president they, resigned. I don't think they ended mean, up building that gym. I think it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> we, we ended up getting out of Vietnam eventually. I mean, there were, you know, the, the, the president of Colombia. I mean, I think of the Colombia thing of like the the Soissons Huitard, the 68ers in France, too, of like, yeah. you know, it, it, it is about to have a De Gaulle is about to resign, too. It's always on the precipice of that, but it didn't gain traction. I mean, like we're in this in this period now where I suspect that this is just going to keep going. And there, there can be a resignation because there have been many resignations. There were a few back then. I mean, the, the president of Columbia is one of them. But there is a resignation every day. People back out of things all the time. People surrender constantly. And surrendering is what emboldens people. And I don't I, I can't believe I have to say something so quotidian and boring and obvious. But, you know, I mean, I just made a joke about the Houthis. I mean, we they're showing that if you don't respond to things, people become emboldened and they keep going. But I will say this about about Evergreen. If you think it was just people marching around campus saying we're not going to leave this building and, you know, running professors off of campus, you're wrong because the people who were the main sort of leaders of this movement were stalking the campus with baseball bats. And if you, I mean, I could, if those five of those people happened upon me, I could have disarmed all of them in 13 seconds. These were, these were not very tough people, but they were walking around trying to intimidate people with baseball bats. That is something that should get you kicked out of college pretty quickly. And one, one would imagine that, you know, 10 what years happened previous, to your permanent were, record? Remember yeah. that this is yeah. going down on your permanent, permanent record. record. Now yeah. we associate today that was like, oh my God, you know, like all these people who had bad permanent records were like really geniuses and they invented the internet or something yeah but and i'm not even saying i want to go back to it i'm not making a reactionary point but i am yeah. saying it seems like if you are a a, a commie left-wing radical on campus or at the new york times or at the white house and you do something that like most people would say you know you can't do that and keep your job dude mm -hmm. but you but it's like they know there won't be any consequences to it i mean i'm thinking like listen this guy did get fired but we saw the story about the let's say, the en flagrante sexual encounter in the Senate Judiciary hearing room. Yeah. Go look it up, everybody. <laughs> yeah, he did he get fired. He was a Ben Cardin staffer. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there were like people on Twitter and like I read this thing on Afro News that were like comparing him to Anne Frank. Yeah, yeah I'm just no. so there's an expectation. It's like when when people did civil disobedience before, you know, 
Thoreau, Martin Luther King. I mean, they there was a consequence. They went to jail. It was yeah. not like, you know, they, they were making a sacrifice. Now it's like you get all the moral, you know, you get all those sort of moral good feelings of protest with none of the consequences in this current game, right? Keep, keep, keep in mind that this kid, and it hasn't been really pointed out, who's on Ben Cardin's staff, had previously, I think the previous week, yelled or interrupted a CNN interview by yelling ceasefire now to some congressman who was talking to CNN, which is, you know, it's also something that you, you shouldn't do as a junior staffer on the Hill when you're kind of in, interceding in somebody else's interview to make, make sure that your political point, which is just a bumper sticker, is heard. But look, this is, I mean, it's variously attributed to Antonio Gramsci and Rudy Duchka, but the long march to the institution. And that has always been the plan. And it has been unbelievably successful in America in can, the can we 2020s. Back up? Rudy yeah. Duchke is the leader, student leader, yeah. student uh, leader in Germany who, who was, he wasn't murdered, but he was like incapacitated. He by, was shot and incapacitated yeah. by a fascist, which set off, you know, Germ West Germany's own 1968 yeah. contracts and led eventually sort of, and we can get, we'll get into this in another episode, the uh, formation of the Beider Meinhof group. Yeah. One of the worst terrorists of the 20th century in Europe. And Gromsky is the, I mean, along with a few others, you would say, you know, kind of the post-Marxist who begins this philosophy that where we start to see racial identity and gender identity mm -hmm. replacing class as yeah. this new kind of philosophy. And it's, it's an illiberal approach that has a lot of people who really like it on the left. Yeah, I mean, you just did yeah. an episode on Frantz Fanon and the Wretched of the Earth, and this is a kind of thing we've been talking about and, and the people who are, you know, the kind of urtexts of anti-colonialism. In this sense, there's a sort of broader cultural revolution, I would say, that Gramsci, people like Rudy Duchka, who had no real impact in America and didn't leave a, a great written record. He was a very good orator, but always be frightened of Germans who are good orators. But he he was that's what he that's what he did. And but that idea of the long march of the institutions is a very, very slow plan, right? This is not 1917 in St. Petersburg, Petrograd. This is not a revolution in a minute. This is a revolution over a long period of time. And I think the interesting thing about this is you see people like Donald Trump, and there's a people are totally mystified by how, despite how hideous he is and how kind of dopey he is and, the, and sort of how criminal he is in so many ways. And he's up in front of courts all the time and, you know, the Colorado Supreme Court taking away his right to be on the primary ballot, et cetera. But the, the thing that was never planned for in these long marches through the institutions, particularly when they were created by people who are supposedly tribunes of the working class, is what the working class would actually do when that march got to its, its, its final, final point, right? And that's kind of how people felt, I think, starting in 2014 in America with Ferguson and then Me Too, these kind of big moments, George Floyd, et cetera. And I mean, a lot of that, the ones prior to 2016, precipitates Donald Trump in a lot of ways. I mean, he was talking about political correctness, which was is a phrase we don't really use much anymore, I suppose, has been supplanted by the word wokeness. But that is, I mean, the thing is, when you want to do that, and you want to use the institutions to smuggle your message or smuggle your radicalism 
to the general population, you should expect a backlash. And that's what they never plan for. I always compare it to the people who are exceptionally rosy about Iraq, is that it'll be like Germany in 1945. It's like, well, you should, you should figure into that plan the Iranians and the Medi army and things like that, and then see how it plays. Because that's not what thing, people were thinking about when it came to the long march of the institutions. It's on the other end of this, there are going to be people that say, this is not kind of reflective of my values in any way. And that's the outrage that people see. That's why this alternative media structure, you know, people who I think are dopey, like Tim Poole, who have like millions of, of viewers because they speak to the opposite side of this. And that's not something you see on the mainstream media uh, at all. Well, that, that gets to, to James Bennett. But I mean, also, I think we, we should point out that what maybe started as solidarity with the exploited workers yeah. has completely broken faith with the exploited workers because nobody bothered to ask the workers what they thought of the nuclear family, what they thought of the gender binary, what they yeah. thought of any of these sorts of pretty kind of like very feet ideas that most people think are silly and they would like kind of laugh it off. And let's be honest, we were all laughing it off until fairly recently. And then we were like, holy shit, this is really happening. Yeah. But I, I want to kind of get to this, this point where I don't want to focus too much on campus. I mean, I've been doing a lot mm -hmm. of stuff and lots of people are, are covering the campus idea. But now that they've begun to graduate, it's yeah. like, when, what happened to like the basic understanding that it's a privilege to work here? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, what happened to that? On a basic level, and I, I let's dive a little bit into the James Bennett, you know, sort of massive essay in The Economist, where he finally gives his side of the story about the circumstances of which he was basically pushed out for running the, the Tom Cotton op-ed. Now, the merits of this particular op-ed, it's been discussed again to death, but I think an element that has been Doesn't somewhat matter. overlooked, the people who were on Slack, who were coming up with a strategy to basically pressure and cancel Bennett, Mm -hmm. they should have been fired. Yeah. Like, I don't understand that. That's like, you know, come on, you can't, you can't do that. Like you can't. Well, they don't think it. of this as if it were an insurance company or something. I mean, they give themselves right. a lot of credit and believe that they're the ones that can control the future and control the ideas of the future. And by, I mean, this is, this is what happens in every totalitarian movement when you realize or believe that you have a certain amount of power when it comes to the distribution of ideas you start trying to control the distribution of bad ideas. And by controlling, I mean, shutting them down. And that's essentially what they're trying to do with them in the times. But it, it, it's a weird thing. I mean, you say they don't want to talk about campus, and I don't either because it's been, you know, sort of beaten to death. But there is an, a, you know, an overlap that is almost perfect. When you see when fire, our friends, yeah. Lukianoff, and when that starts, it starts with Alan Kors, and Harvey Silverglade, and they release a book called The Shadow University. And it's about 94, maybe 95, 96, around that time, when I was in college, when I was ending my college career. And it was wild when I was there. It was completely insane. And then it cooled off, and everyone had this idea that it kind of gone away, and that had been defeated. But those people who were in college when I was in college, during that first tumult, uh, then became professors. And associate <laughs> And it's, and it's an almost perfect yeah. overlap time-wise. And then these people come out of college and they come out with this idea. And you see this across the disciplines. I mean, I'm writing something about this now, about how history is, people have stopped using history as a 
as a sort of template to view previous ideologies and the past and, and you know, how it worked in the past and what that might mean for the future and trying to control the political d- debate of the present by manipulating the past. And that's because the university has become, in my opinion, something that is so unbearably ideological. And I think there's people on the left and the right who understand this. I mean, there's a lot of people, I mean, I, I think of people like John Chait and stuff. I, I don't think that John Chait would agree with probably 90% of what I'm saying now, but he's, I, I think there's a lot of sensible people on the left that realize that that sort of radicalism and the way that there are people on the right who really saw the radicalism of the Republican Party around 2015 being ultimately very destructive. But what happens then is you get into a university, like, so out of the university and every time, so I said this, this is really interesting. I said this on the fifth call and a reader took me up on this. I said, okay, go out and get the Harper's letter. If listeners remember, there was a letter that was published in Harper's about free speech. It was a, a very ideologically disparate group of people. Salman Rushdie was on it. Noam Chomsky was on it. You know, Thomas Chatterton Williams, my friend and co-host Camille Foster. And then there was a counter letter by people oh. saying, no, we can't have this kind I of thing. I forgot about I, the counter letter. I asked if someone would do this and someone did. A listener went out there in in a very painful process, found the ages of everybody on every letter, and then did the average. It was a 25, 30-year difference. Oh, wow. Between the original letter and then the counter letter. Everyone in the counter letter was in their 20s. And that is kind of what I experienced uh, when I was working at Vice. I mean, it was an incredible thing that after the Me Too scandal, there was a Vice Me Too scandal, it was published in the, the New York Times, and afterwards, every member of staff felt completely free to tweet about this and to tweet about how horrible their workplace was. And I realized that there are a certain group of issues, a certain group of topics that, you, that, that younger people believe immunize you from any, any censure, which is race, which is gender, you know, transphobia, homophobia, et cetera, things in that kind of you know, the, the kind of intersectional paradigm. The, if you talk about those things and the things that you don't like about your own company, so you're not going to get fired from MSNBC if you go out there and say, I work at MSNBC and we don't have enough anchors of color. I mean, this is insubordination, right? I mean, this is in a, in a you know, 10, 15 years ago, you'd be like, well, why didn't you bring this? It was kind of like the Snowden debate. Why didn't you go, go to the authority? Right. Why, why are you going public when you can go internally and try to have this have this debate, but nobody wants to do that because they do understand that there's heroism that is attached to you if you do bring this to the public. And there's no sanction. That's, so, the, that's the problem. Yeah, Let's bring back the sanctions. Uh, look, world needs plenty of bartenders. <laughs> Two weeks pay. Hit the bricks. I mean, instead, we're getting like listening sessions at the White House for staffers who are uncomfortable with the war in Gaza. Yeah. What? Like, yeah, that's not. I mean, run for Congress if you want. Run for yeah, president. exactly. Run for Congress. You do yeah. you, it's a free country. You could do many things, but you're working. I mean, I don't know. It's not. You know, like I'm not. It's like a little bit disingenuous because I'm not a big Biden fan. I'm not a Trump fan either. So, you know, it's not like I'm trying to give advice to the White House or something like that. But it's a. It's absurd when I think about this, and they won't even sign their names. That's the other That's, thing. The congressional the open, staff do the same thing, yeah. Yeah, the open letter with... It's a closed letter. It's not an open letter. <laughs> it's not an open letter. <laughs> what do you... 
everybody it's like go back and read the history of these things it's like you know. it's also by the way you know they don't the the idea is that they don't want to be punished yeah and they and they should actually understand that the kind of premise of this conversation is you won't be punished so you should sign your name to it but also in you know the great civil rights struggles of the past the entire point was putting your life oftentimes and definitely your career on the line yes. for a principle that you believe is bigger than you and bigger than your sort of insignificant Well, that's real heroism. Even that's if I disagreed with the cause, that's yeah. a real, you're making a sacrifice that, and, and then now it's like, it's like, what is the line? It's like, you know, history repeats as farce or something like that. It's like now yeah. it's a farce of yeah. what we saw in the 68 generation, the 68 generation, they paid a price as stupid as their ideas were. They did pay a price for yeah. preventing the president of Columbia from going to the bathroom. The Evergreen students, nothing, right? Nothing. Were there any consequences to their lunacy? Absolutely not. No, I mean, other than the marketplace, I think that in the years afterwards, the number of kids applying to Evergreen plummeted. I don't know if that held, but that was initially, I mean, there's obviously a report of this about Harvard right now that the that I made this joke the other day to when I said I wouldn't want my daughter going to Harvard. And I think it was either Matt or Camille or said, said, why not? And I said, well, I don't want her going to a bad school. And it's like, there's <laughs> reputationally, that's one thing, but it's not, I mean, these are places that are, they, they have to realize that there's an end to this, that you can't do it forever because there will be a backlash, whether that's Donald Trump, whether that's the rise of, I don't know, the University of Austin, which I know nothing about, but there are going to be, be counter movements to this stuff, which, which, by the way, is so unbearably intolerant. That's yeah. the problem that I have with it more than anything. It's not as if people are coming out with views that I find noxious, but they're willing to debate them. I mean, this is the alcove one, alcove two thing, and I'm not going to get sidetracked by that, but your listeners can go Google that and you know, you'll hear about the yeah. Stalinists and the anti-Stalinists at- uh, uh, Original at, neocons. At, at City University, at right? City University. Yeah, and that's, and that's where yeah. these things happen, right? I mean, there were so many schisms within the left in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, even in the 30s and 40s, I mean, there's a- Oh, there a were far more in the 30s schism. and 40s, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, read socialist newspapers that are attacking the communist newspaper, and it's just, you know, never-ending, the Trotskyites versus Stalinists, et cetera. And that doesn't happen very much anymore because it's it's the sort of squelching of debate and to to tell people that that your views are you know violence they encourage genocide they encourage all sorts of bad behavior which is just not true it's just debate. Well, part of this I want to ask you, and it's I, I, it's a theory, but like if you remember when this when we started noticing the radicalism on campus, there were some pretty good articles I think in the New Yorker. And we saw it, I think, in your piece. Like, I mean, the inter the, the evergreen students that you interviewed acted as if they they were in a gulag. I mean, they were yeah. they they saw themselves as this oppressed class. Mm -hmm. And which is hilarious if you know anything about the history of oppression. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way, it's like, would firing these students or 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 they're expelling the students or firing some of these staffers? And actually giving them this sacrifice, would it in some ways be like, aha, you proved my point. Now we see the violence inherent in the system. Like, I'm wondering if yeah. they're like, if they're trying to get that, or is it really just like, hey, they know there's no consequences for it. So they get all the glory and none of the, none, none of the pain. 
I mean, they're piggybacking on the success of ordinary journalism. So you have a bunch of people that come in who have these incredibly radicals, radical sort of electronic intifada type ideas with the Middle East, for instance. And they are going to try to sort of insert those or prevent other people from having the opposite idea at a place like the New York Times. Bennett's piece, you know, talking about the union and in trying to organize, you know, these these internal charters that prevent people from actually having differing uh, points of view if they differ with what these radicals believe is the truth. And so what they're doing is they're leveraging the, the success of these newspapers that have been successful, magazines, et cetera, because they weren't that person. And so if you actually fire them, you fire them en masse, and they go out and start a newspaper, they go out and start a magazine, it's going to have a circulation of 6,000 people. Right. It's not going to have the 500,000 that the New York Times has. I mean, that's why they work so hard to you know, reach the largest popular possible audience. You, know? you can do this successfully. You look at Rachel Maddow and people who have been kind of single-minded on one issue and I think been wrong on most issues. But you can, you can you know, gain an audience for that, but you have to be like her, which is actually a talented broadcaster. But you take all of these people and you kick them out. They might say, yeah, I'm oppressed, but what is the difference? I mean, people saying that they're oppressed when they're at Barnard is always I hilarious know. to me. People, I, I mean, I grew up in a union household. The, the f funniest thing is the only place I see unions having these, these um, big bloody debates beyond you know, sort of I know. Starbucks and Amazon are newspapers and magazines. And it's because they want to have the Woody Guthrie guitar that says this machine kills fascists, but there's no fascists to kill. So they have to make up the fascists and say everything is fascist. And they are going to be the Woody Guthrie of their generation and kill them. We have to union organize because they've taken labor history courses and they, they, they romanticize that stuff. But they're, you know, getting really good pay to do not a lot. And to have really bad opinions. I mean, I look at somebody like Nicole. Well, Hampton. some of the I, I mean, don't listen. know what she what she actually writes. I don't know what she oh, does. Are you talking I mean, about? Nicole Hannah Jones. I mean, people oh, like this. I mean, God. she's the Times. I, I don't. She doesn't appear to write anything. And yeah, I, and, and you're right. I don't want to denounce everybody. I'm talking about a very particular, very vocal fringe. I've seen people that I know on social media, but I don't rat them out because I'm not a rat who say things about their institutions on social media, and I can't believe that they do so. I'm like, I know you're. Your account is private, but what what do you believe this is? You believe that the editorial staff, that the the owners, that the executives at the New York Times are essentially like the Politburo, that you know yeah. this is like a public works project, and you should be able to oppose. No, it's a private company. I don't understand what you think it is. So let me ask you this, because I sort of feel like the first college president or the first like. I don't know, publisher of a mainstream, you know, media outlet that just fires people or like expels students. Yeah. They'll be able to run for president. I mean, I'm just, I think Correct. that there's a hunger for the, like you talk about the backlash, but I just think there's a lot of normies yeah. that'd be like, yeah, you know, you, you deface right. the menorah with a Palestinian flag and that's against our policies and uh, hit the bricks, buddy. You can go study at Tufts if they'll let you in. Yeah. Or no, wherever, think, you know, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I'm and Ronald to... Reagan, by the way, ran in, I think, 66, partly unlike denouncing the Berkeley protests. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's it's that's like exactly. he was like, I mean, that he... was part of his thing. What is yeah, what was his yeah, famous I, line? I don't think I don't think he was wrong to do so. <laughs> smells smells like Tarzan. Looks like G.I. looks like Jane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you've like... seen this at a couple of universities, not not many. I mean, 
you have Ben Sass, who is now the president of University in Florida. Yeah. You know, no, we've Purdue. seen universities like Chicago, you know, say, all right, we believe yeah, in yeah. free expression and free speech. Yeah. That's good. But I'm talking about like just if I'm not I'm I'm against, by the way, like more speech regulations. Like if you want to say from the river to the sea, if you want to say Israel's a Nazi Be my state, guest. do it and then but don't run for the administrators when you know somebody says you're a moron mm-hmm. or you know, like you know, yeah. you know, I don't want you to or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So that's fine. But or and I also don't like the idea like you're going to you're going to tell like orga- student organizations that they're gonna, you're going to like say that you, they can't have a student for justice for Palestine. I mean, like that's, that's ridiculous. Want, yeah. yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So on on a kind of consistent free speech ground, I'm for that. Although I understand the argument that if like all the rules apply to everyone except for the Jews, that's effed up, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I get that. But I'm still on the free speech side. But there's a lot of examples, like the Middlebury students. Remember this? This was like four years ago. Charles Mary, they're shaking the car. It was a very scary moment. Well, why are those students still matriculating? It's because of what Charles Murray believes. Yeah, you're right. If Charles Murray, you know, had a a rather radical view about botany, I think that maybe those students would be be expelled or at least or if it wasn't somewhere. if it wasn't Charles, if it was roxanne gay giving, giving if it was roxanne gay about, i mean everybody they're going to talk everybody. about like the, the 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 tyranny of roseanne or something yeah <laughs> you know right like they they would everybody would be like you know you're out of here buddy yeah you know? yeah I middlebury mean, that, will not stand for this i mean that's the same thing is true about you know the the college's cooper union here in new york city of the Jewish students in the library. And look, I was not as exercised about that as other people were, but I do understand the argument that if it were a bunch of, you know, people in red MAGA caps banging on the window and there were, you know, a handful of black students. We would still be talking about it. Yeah. We would still be talking about it. Nobody would stop talking about it. Yes. There would would be like five New Yorker, 10,000 word essays on it. Of course. Yeah. It it, it only takes, yeah. I mean, it only takes one crazy person and one kind of violent person to upend the conversation and pretend that we are living in a sort of Orwellian nightmare. We are not. I, I do think that that you're you're right, though, but about the speech code stuff, I think that one of the things that people have to be very careful of when the shoe is on the other foot, because I, without October 7th, I don't think it would have been in any way that rather than saying, can we include Jews in this? My argument is just, can we break down the whole edifice? Yes, and say that don't we don't need to infantilize anyone. And I and you know, college is uncomfortable, life is uncomfortable, and the history of the Jewish people in the past, you know, many thousands of years. But let's just take 200, 300, 300 years, in the pale of settlements and the pogroms that pushed everybody out of Russia. These are people that weren't concerned about. Well, that he said something that was a little. They're worried about people knocking down their doors and murdering them. And so I think that the the Jews have, have dealt with a lot more than stupid students with their faces wrapped in kafias saying mean things to them. I just well, think the yeah, whole thing and I will to be, say this, be... because you are an honorary Jew, I consider you, I mean, I know you're, you're not religious, and I'm not trying to, like, put you in a box, but, you know. <laughs> but I'm more Jewish I, can, than I feel like we can, I can say this to you as a dear friend and everything, but I have been reading about the original sort of 1948 generation yeah. that fought the original war of independence with the Palestinians yeah. called the Nakba, which is bad history. And the sacrifices that that generation made in the shadow of the Holocaust, dealing with, at least until 48, a pretty oppressive British colonial mandate, in addition to 
you know, the skirmishes between the Arab populations and the Jewish populations. And the Arab revolt and things like that. And the Arab revolt and all that. But also just the deprivation. I mean, there was, mm -hmm. there was real, real hunger, not full-on starvation, because, you know, supply routes were blocked. The conditions under which the Jewish people basically formed, like, turned these militias like the Haganah and the Irgun, into a military were extraordinary. The amount of sacrifice that lots of ordinary people had to make. And then comparing that, I'm like, well, I would like to see the Gen Z Jews on campus today that I am, have a lot of sympathy for their plight. Nobody likes to be shamed. Nobody likes any of that. But to draw maybe some of that resilience in the sense of like, you know, you can handle it. Yeah. And, you know, you don't, you don't have to sort of, you know, shirk away or like feel ashamed or something i mean you can you can handle it because i don't i'm kind of with you like i was watching that evergreen thing again and i'm like i'm not afraid of these kids i just think they're no. bananas you know no i mean they approach you with a bat and unless you're 48 pounds and haven't eaten in six years you're you can take them down <laughs> pretty quickly i'm not i'm not worried about a physical confrontation with these kind of you know well i'm not even talking about physical. i'm just saying like type. just like but yeah, yeah. I mean, as as far as just, you know, there's intellectual combat is not anything these guys are good at. They're incredibly, this is the sort of fanaticism of the current generation. I hate saying this because you sound old and you sound like you're painting with a very, very broad brush, but I see it a lot more in, in this generation. And I see what I see on the streets of New York City. And I see this a great example of this is watch the video of Alec Baldwin who, you know, strange new respect from a lot of conservatives for Alec Baldwin. I've always respected him for, you know, reasons that I can get He leads into. off the monologue, by the way. He's, I, I, I like him for a lot of reasons. But he is somebody who is fearless and just goes in with these guys that are blocking him on the street, not because he's counter-protesting, he's just walking by. And they go and attack him. And when you see this, you see this level of fanaticism. And the thing that I well, you don't want to you don't want to trifle with with Alec Baldwin. Especially no, he punches a firearm around. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that, too that soon. Too. Okay, too. all right, that too. The, yeah, I mean, the man was getting screwed with on the set of Rust. <laughs> the the thing I'm going to talk about this in the fifth column that we're recording later today. But I think that what I see from these people, and I saw this on the campus of Evergreen too, and I see it in a lot of friends of mine, is that. They are, they have this essential instincts of racists. And I don't mean that, and be very clear about this. I don't mean that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. It's, that's a tedious and boring debate that I don't want to get involved in because, you know, every, every example of that is different. But when you tell people for years that you, because of, you know, the level of melanin you have or because who your parents are, cannot be racist. It's impossible for you to be be racist, and you give people essentially a hall pass, they start taking yeah. on the qualities of races by speaking in very broad terms about groups, by repeating sort of this gruel propaganda of, I saw one today, a very famous actress, two million odd followers on Instagram talking about how the Israelis are executing people on the streets, binding their hands and shooting them. This, is, this, this woman has a show on HBO, by the way, I can't remember her name, she's a black actress, and that's all I really know about her. But this kind of stuff is like you start repeating. I mean, what do they believe that one would read, not in Der Sturmer, which was a, a, a step above everything else and it's just brutality and pornography, but in like the Volkische Beobachter, the mainstream daily newspaper in, in Germany? 
how do you think Jews were represented in novels and, and, and film, et cetera? It was that they would commit crimes, these crimes against it was blood libels. This is, there's a lot of that. And it's all of the instincts that one has as a racist, because you cannot yourself possibly be racist. You've been told this forever. You're on the side of the good. You're on the side of the angels. And so all of a sudden, you start sounding and looking and acting a lot like people who are blocking off streets in Birmingham, Alabama. Is that an overstatement? I don't think it is. And I don't think it is because just, and I'm not talking about the number of people that I know and I respect that are on the other side of this issue from me. I am talking about the people that have been out in the streets of New York every night, every night, <clears throat> blocking entrances, you know, going into Moynihan Station right. and shutting things down, just, you know, blocking off bridges, getting on highways. These are not rational people. These are not people that are willing and capable of having a rational debate. They're extremists and they, they, they're immune from counter evidence. And that's kind of what you see, what I've always found with like racists, particularly like anti-black racists, they have no, they're, they're immune to any counter arguments because they have, it's, it's almost like a, like a theological position. That's really interesting. I mean, but there's another, there's another part of this, which is that you can't know what it's like to be X, right? You can't know what it's like to be a woman. You can't know what it's like to be black. You can't know what it's like to be gay. So you have to take the word of, you'd say, another gay person, another black person. No, only a radical left version of that, yeah. right? So it's like, if you find the Jamie Kerchicks or the Glenn yeah. Lowry's, people who dissent from a lot of this intersectionality, and then you say, well, what about this guy? Is he not, you know? And that then that person becomes an even greater threat. That's, you, you by the way, this, why Claudine yeah. Gay had to get rid of Roland Fryer, right? I mean, that was like... Yeah. This is the yeah. whole thing. Like uh, the bigger threat is that like, whoa, my God, we can't have any dissent within our tent mm -hmm. here. And I think that that is actually the, that, that is the Achilles heel, I think, of the movement. It's, it's why Claudine Gay will stay and Roland Fryer, the economist at Harvard, who was accused of sexual harassment, was sanctioned. Well, will she on, stay, though? Pretty, because they, I just read uh, Aaron Sibarium. Yeah, uh, I just, it should seem, she seems they found more it. plagiarism. Yeah, I mean, the best one is that she plagiarized her acknowledgements, which is, I mean, unbelievable. Amazing. It's, 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 it's wonderful. It's, but you see this guy who's a gay black conservative who's an Iraq war veteran. This happened yesterday. And he was going to some sort of conservative event, I think in Arizona. And he was shouted down by a group of about 25 people right. on the way in, calling him the N word and calling him a fag and all this stuff. And he went on to, and he, he handled himself brilliantly. I mean, I, I gave him a Twitter follow because I was like, nice job, buddy. But they, he goes on to Abby Phillips show on CNN. And the entire, I mean, and this is exactly what you're saying, is that the only avatar of that experience that you're allowed to have is one from a political point of view, a very, very particular political point of view. Because ent her entire sort of frame of questioning was that, didn't you know that the right was like this? How are you as a black gay man involved in, 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 you know, he answers in, I think, an appropriate way. And he says, you know, I knew that there's this, these type of people out there. And these are the kind of Nick Fuentes types, the groiper types. But yeah, I mean, that's always the framing is that, is that you can have these views, but you know, you're on the wrong side. Just the actual correct a side note on, on Fuentes, who is a joke. I mean, if people are really, I mean, I'm, I'm troubled by it, that he has some followers and he says these mm -hmm. horrible things. Like, how hard would it be to just get this guy laid? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like if he was very, <laughs> you know, I mean, it would be hard. I'm not saying, but I'm yeah. just saying, you know, like, wouldn't that, I just feel like that would maybe, I don't know. Yeah. 
like that, that may, maybe that would right. that would ease up the pressure on the Jewish population. I really do. Code. I'm just like, yeah. come on, like this. It's like some of these. Like when I'm just thinking about the. I know we're like a little bit off on a tangent here, but like the incel types. I'm like, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. I understand why you have embraced some radical ideas. Yeah. Have you tried sex? Yeah. Well, by the way, to, and to kind of bring it back uh, to where we were talking about before, is that when I talk to people about what's happening in Gaza right now and what happened on October 7th, it's, it's inevitable that people are going to say this to me. They're going to say something along the lines of open air prison. You have to ha have a sense of what these people experienced, et cetera. And this is what creates the reaction. And these are the same people at the same time. We'll, we'll talk about the King David Hotel bombing and the Nakba and, you know, Dear Yassin. And, and my response is, if you do one, you have to do both, right? If you say yeah. that about October 7th, the people who struggled to get into the Palestinian mandate because the British were preventing them, you can go from history books to Leon Uris's Exodus and you will figure this out, that once they got there, the brutalization of the camps, the brutalization of picking up and leaving all of your property multiple times over yeah. a five, six year period. Is that brutalization not something that explains Diriacin, that explains the Nakba, that explains the King David Hotel bombing, or whatever people bring up about 1948 as look at the war criminals in their well, original form? I, and, and I'm not saying that I, I Diriacin, agree with that is also complicated, but yeah. It's a complicated question because there were lots of different people who had an interest of portraying it as a worse massacre than it was. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that there weren't unarmed people who were killed. That's yeah. true. One of the facts, by the way, as I've been in my deep dive on this stuff, is that Menachem Begin apologized for the conduct of, of his forces at that point. Oh, yeah. And no, I, yeah, I, on, I, on the King David Hotel, again, what people really don't recognize is that that was a British military headquarters at the time. Yeah. And there were lots of steps that were in the end not followed unfortunately that tried to warn in arabic in english and in hebrew everybody to kind of get out of there again i'm not trying to make excuses for it but it's not really comparable to the orgy of bloodletting that was october no but 7th. i mean doesn't, it doesn't you know what i mean like yeah it doesn't have to be even directly right or you know even halfway comparable but you know i'm just saying the two things that people bring up so frequently which is you know, the situation in Gaza that precipitated October 7th. That's a conversation that people have. They usually shout it at me. They don't have a conversation with me about it. But that only applies to one group of people. You know, yeah. there's, there's never people that are brutalized that they disagree with who are allowed to do brutal things in response. And whether or not you think that about the Ergun, about the Haganah, about the 1940, doesn't make a difference. It's just they won't allow that. It's a one-way street. Also, I... The, the sort of Nakba version of the history seems to completely memory hole the fact that there were all these other Arab armies that joined the fight. And yeah. that they're like, it's it, it the idea Five. that it was just a slaughter. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was like, it was just a slaughter. And I'm like, no, there was a, it was a war. Yeah. And I'm not trying to minimize anything, sure, but sure. And we were, we were in a little bit of a yeah. tangent because I want to kind of get, get back, back to, yeah, to, yeah, sure. to, to, to newsrooms and, and other sorts of things like this. So one of the things I found really, really offensive going back over the James Bennett essay was this notion that an op-ed expressing a mainstream opinion that distinguished between peaceful protests and riots, mm -hmm. by the way, which they never acknowledged, was endangering mm -hmm. the work staff of the New York Times. It's ludicrous. 
we have been journalists for a long time. I don't count myself as the bravest journalist, but I've been in war zones and I know. Part of the job is you, if you're covering a riot, it's a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. This excessive safetyism when, when argued, when this is being expressed by journalists, I really feel like the, the profession is in a lot of... I think the first seeds of this you see in 1989, in yeah. Valentine's Day 1989, when the fatwa was issued by the Iranian state to kill Salman Rushdie for his novel Satanic Verses, there, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of people, a lot more than there would be today, that stood up shoulder to shoulder with Rushdie and defended him. Some that didn't, including people like John le Carre, but most, most people did. But there was like, okay, we're not going to publish this in paperback. No, 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 that's not what you do. But there were, I mean, I, I can't imagine today if there was a Muhammad cartoon crisis, what would happen? I mean, it's, right. I mean, look, we saw it in 2015 with the slaughter of, of journalists at Charlie Hebdo and the fact that Penn wanted to honor those who survived. And there was an enormous number of people from Penn who protested the, the, these murdered journalists being celebrated because they had the wrong ideas and that might have offended somebody. But I think more than that, it's the, it's the fear themselves of being called out for something. And this is not a, a profession that does very well with fearful people because the greatest journalists of every generation. But, but no, the argument, though, was like this crazy thing. Like Tom, Tom, people will read Tom Cotton's op-ed and support bringing troops in and our journalists. They, none of them believe. None of them the believe that. Are, Not a single one of them That's just such it. bullshit. No, no, no. Like, they, these are people, for for all their stupidities, that presumably went to Yale, Columbia, et cetera. I don't think a single one of them believed that. And there was no, by the way, later accounting or audit because it was published and no one was killed. No one was harmed. No yeah. one was even insulted, I don't think. So I don't think anyone believes that. It's just when you're in a position and you don't want to publish something. You don't want something to be published. And you're a journalist. What right. do you not want to look like? Somebody who's squelching speech. So what do you say? Yeah. You say, well, it's actually not speech uh, that I'm worried about. It's violence that I'm worried about. It could endanger blah, blah, blah. Because then you've taken your, your um, sort of firepower away from speech. You've, ta- you've taken the onus off of speech and put it onto something like violence. And, and everybody hates violence. Nobody wants to you know, encourage violence or allow. I mean, this is the same thing that happens in the Muhammad. Well, except we were just having a conversation where some violence is fine. I, I mean, I, I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones said, I hope they call it the 1619 riots. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there is a number of people that, you know, imagine Maxine Waters and people harass them wherever they are. And that's the Trump administration yeah, right. officials. Is that, you know, that kind of thing, harassing Rand Paul, surrounding him when he was coming from the White House. People forget about that. You know, that's actual intimidation. And unless you're breaking the law, I don't think... Or the Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh I, I there's mean, there's a lot of these things that are... Also January 6th. Yeah, oh, yeah of course. I, I mean, I take that as, as a given yes. because, I mean, we've had... Yeah. I've had nine conversations about it today because of the, the, the Trump ruling. But in Colorado... Where are you on the I Trump think it's ruling, ridiculous. Because I find I think it, it's ridiculous for a lot. I mean, you have to prove this in court and he should be able to defend himself against the charge that he's involved in a... In, in a putsch. But I will say this, one final thing on the, on this previous question of, of people, where were we? What were we saying? We were saying the people that, 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 you know, think that there's violence. It's like the idea that like a journalist would say, 
publishing something is making me unsafe. But but look, I'm like, why are you a journalist? Stop being. You're I, not I'm in my profession. To you're... figure out which journalists in the pantheon of great American Western, I'll just say Western. I'm not very key. I don't right. really know much about Japanese journalists, for instance, that were not op ed op ed page writers who didn't show a certain amount of bravery. Ernie Pyle, you know, sure. Hemingway, Hitchens went to about a bazillion war zones and used to always say that I've been to every axis of evil country, was almost kidnapped in, in Lebanon by a Syrian fascist party. There, there, there's a million examples of this, of, you know, you can, you can laugh at as people on the left really love to attack Douglas Murray because Douglas has been... Yeah, he, he puts his money yeah, where he's Douglas has been very effective and they don't like how effective he's been. But Douglas was in Gaza. He was there with the IDF. Well, that, that's the way to go in. And, and by the way, in the middle of a war that's roiling in you know, very small territory, you don't go in by yourself. <laughs> There's no way to go in by yourself. But yeah, that's, these are people that are actually are putting up with an enormous amount of danger to practice their craft and they should be respected for it. And I, by the way, I respect Robert Fisk. I do. Sure. I, I, I mean, yeah. people like that. You know, I don't respect, I don't respect his, his writing. writing at all. You know. By the way, do you remember that famous thing where beating he was up beating up in Afghanistan? Up at one point, and he said, "Blamed it on himself." And he and he apologized <laughs> for the people beating him up. I'm like, yeah, that's why he was in. He was in my mind. Yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> once you go down that road, yeah, yeah. you know. You, I, but but I do respect him for 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 going out there and 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 reporting from Afghanistan. That's not that's no easy feat, no easy task. No. All right. Well, we have a little bit of time left. So how do we get out of it? Oh God. We got to find like well, one college president, hopefully of a really good school, that just starts expelling people. Well, we're seeing it happening already, but in a slightly different yeah. way. We're seeing it happening with speech. We're seeing it with people who don't really care anymore because they realize that there were a lot of paper tigers out there making threats that they couldn't back up. Right. And there are, of course, a lot of real tigers out there who were firing people from their jobs, not for insubordination yeah. and not for denouncing the institution online or publicly, but because they said the wrong thing 20 years ago, 10 years ago, or even that day made somebody feel quote unquote uncomfortable and they, they're told to, to hit the bricks. So I think in the sense that it's, it's turned in that. And there is a wonderful thing about yeah. the free market at work here, because I mean, one of the greatest examples of the free market at work and people being able to recover from ludicrous firings by sort of semi-Stalinists is Shane Gillis. The comedian oh, who is yes. making so much money in thought that his career was probably over when he was hired by SNL and fired within the day. And yes. now he sells out stadiums. He has number by the way, one. He's funnier than everybody. He's funnier than everybody. He's funnier than everybody on SNL by, by an order of magnitude. I mean, but, and you know, he had yes. the number one special on Netflix. Netflix has been holding the line. Netflix was holding the line, not maybe because of principle, but maybe because of money. But it doesn't matter what it is. As long as somebody holds the line, I don't give a shit why they do it. If it, if it you know, creates a sense of confidence in other people, that's great. And they probably did that because of Dave Chappelle and Spotify. They held the line on Joe Rogan. $90 million yeah. investment, $75 million investment in, in, in Chappelle, or maybe $110 million in Rogan. And when, when that kind of money is on the line, you, you're not as you don't easily fire someone like you do who's you know making $60,000 a year as an associate editor somewhere who said something 
embarrassing online and might cause you a headache for a week. The other thing to remember is don't apologize and just ride it out. Yep. And people will forget. If you just ride it out, people will tend to forget about these things. Although that was the advice that, that Dean Bacay gave to James Bay. Which I think he should have Remember, done, actually. I think he should. No, no, but he, but it, it didn't end up working because it was like, you know, the, the slack became, uh, you know, Yeah, but, but if you are the editor of that way, page, you don't know, you have this, the power this, of firing people? This is an extraordinary thing from this. But a good example, just quick, quickly before I forget. Russell yeah. Brand, talk about somebody yes. who ignored it, didn't apologize, yeah. and it's totally forgotten about. And I, and I don't like him in any way, and I don't know anything about the allegations, whether they're true or not. I'm just saying from a purely tactical career standpoint, he, he waited it out, and he has his own audience. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, okay, so there was this one thing which also stuck in my craw. One of the big organizers on Slack against the op-ed who came up with the idea of going to the union and saying we were no longer safe his byline was on the story about the op-ed in the New York mm -hmm. Times, as Bennett points out. He didn't name him. Yeah, but, yeah, that is another thing. Like, why isn't that guy fired? That's like a fundamental tenet. You cannot cover on the news side of the paper something that you are advocating yeah. for. I mean, the... it's like you are allowed to vote for a Democrat and cover Republicans, but you can't like, you know make a PSA for the Democrats uh, course, or something yeah. like that and then cover it. You can't like, you know, you can't like volunteer for the campaign or something. So that to me is a, another standard out the window, you know, with these. Uh, I, I think when the editorial meetings become Politburo meetings is when you know that it's yeah. time to go or time to blow up the organization. I mean, you and I both worked the Daily Beast. Tina Brown, the great Tina Brown, encouraged people from all over the political spectrum I mean, I went to True. a dinner party at our house where Ayan Hirsi Ali was, was, you know, the, the, the guest of honor. And they used to have a guest of honor and Harry would sit there. Harry. By the way, do you remember this? We were there. Newsweek. I remember this so well. Time magazine, after the Benghazi mm -hmm. stuff, published a terrible front page, like cover story on like the rise of Islamophobia in America. Do you remember Tina Brown decided to run Niles Ferguson? Y yes. And... Wow. I mean, yeah. we're in a different media environment now. I don't know if anyone would have run that essay, but that was because great. she. I, I and... think Tina didn't care about changing the world. And when she did care about that, she started a separate organization, the women in the world thing. She didn't she didn't That's use right. the kind of bully pulpit of Daily Beast, which she started and founded or um, Newsweek, which she purchased. But instead had a, had a great kind of I never felt uncomfortable in an editorial meeting saying something that I believed. I then went to a publication where I never, I stopped going to editorial meetings nice. because there was no way that if I objected to anything that, that I would just have a comfortable job because people were very, right, right. say, narrow-minded about, about things. And that was widely known too. It wasn't just my paranoia. And I found out people saying certain things about, about pitches and suggestions of mine that were, were expressly political, that he shouldn't do this because he, he doesn't have the right politics. And that, that would have, I mean, in, in what happened to Vice, it went, it went down the toilet. Had it, you know, done something that, and look, the Daily Beast is, is, is lacks influence now. It doesn't produce, you know, journalism that people are citing that much like they always did in the past because it became very narrow. It became, it became something that was a, I mean, the, the, the Trump presidency ruined. So you're saying like the, the, 
the 27th article. Can you believe Bill Maher said that? I mean, that it's it's not really moving the it, dial, Michael. Not, Are you it's telling not me? moving the dial very much? <laughs> but you know, the, the the journalism of the past, I th I, th I think, was very good. And you know, there's some stuff that I didn't like. There's some stuff that I did like. But that's what you expect. And I just think that when that the, the Daily Beast slide, and 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 by the way, I'm not talking about viewing numbers. I mean, you can get viewing numbers very easily. I mean, you could just drop pornography in there, and you're going to triple, quadruple the number of right. viewers. It's quality numbers and influence. And I, I don't think that they have any of that anymore because they became just like everybody else. And that was a bunch of people that didn't want to, they wanted to nod along with the kind of amen choir about, about Trump, uh, some of which was true and some of which wasn't. Well, you know, back to Vice, it's, it happened really quickly because I remember when Vice was like hiring Action Bronson mm -hmm. and they would, it, it's like really fun and experimental mm -hmm. and like it was, it was pushing the limits and then it just seemed to like overnight something happened it was a new generation of people that were hired and they yeah. weren't interested in what the previous generation did they they didn't care about or they objected to the stuff that made it possible for them to have a job they had a job they were hiring because of the earlier material which was funny irreverent right. didn't give a shit sometimes stupid and wrong but always you know untethered to any kind of political idea or political platform. And then it became a political, I mean, it, it, so, so, so much so that there was even a moment that where there was a political arm, like a, a, a thing, of, I can't remember what it's called, but there was, a, there was a vice thing that was, it was all about social justice stuff. And it was like a, an entire vertical that was about social justice. I can't remember what it was called, but it was, it was. Do you think that yeah. there even should be like un unions of journalists? Because my, I'm uncomfortable with that. I mean, I, I just don't think, I think that like a publication should have the right, you know, like a publication is saying, okay, we're going to run this or we're not going to run it. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I like, I'm fine with the unions in most cases. I think it's, it, it it's kind of corrupting for writers. I mean, if it's workplace place conditions, number one. Like, look, number... At, look, look at the times thing. Like the times union is using the union to like, try to like censor editorial content. Like mm -hmm. the, they had that letter on the trans stuff and, Mm -hmm. Remember all that, like, yeah. and it's like, yeah, stay in your lane, guys. Like, what is? But, but, but to the earlier point of of this retirement stuff, benefits, yeah, the earlier point of this stuff, the sort of chipping away of the edifice of this crazy yeah. stuff. I mean, you saw that a couple of weeks ago that there was a caucus that was formed within the Times of a you know we are normal and sensible uh, with people like Emily Bazelon, who has been unbelievably and unfairly maligned. I mean, this is not somebody who is a, yes. a person of the right in any way. I always read her in the past going, okay, let's see what the lefty Emily Bazelon has to say now. And a bunch of other people who have actually joined into this caucus. And I don't think they would have been comfortable doing that in 2019 um, when Donald McNeil right. is fired for a double jeopardy offense, the science correspondent who was uttered the magic word yeah. in the context of a conversation about the magic word. And then he was, and then he was, he was cleared of any offense here. And then he was fired later because the times had changed. And that's, I mean, and I mean that in both ways, the times had changed and the times had changed that it was time to wreak your vengeance on people that had fallen afoul of the, the regime. And if the, if the union wants to do it where not everybody has to join, if they don't want to, they don't have to pay dues if they don't want to, and if they are adjudicating, you know, salaries and expenses and, you know, healthcare and vacation time, great. But once the, there's a separate entity 
that starts encroaching on the editorial vision. And it's just a very small group of people that are actually dominating that. That's, I mean, talk about undemocratic. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I, that's what I was kind of getting at. All right, Michael Moynihan, you're a gentleman and a scholar. I know I'll be seeing you soon. And I really appreciate you coming in to talk about this. I couldn't think of a better person to sort of get the perspective. We need it so badly. And just to wander around on we, this topic. We, we covered a lot of ground and in a good way. We covered, we wandered In a around. good way. Yeah, I like I that. I like right. that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Hey, man. Good to good see you. Good to see you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.